Okay, we'll be reading from Isaiah 40, 12 to 18, and then jumping down to 28 and reading to verse 31. Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in skills, and the hills in a, bal in a balance? Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor hath taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as a small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing in vanity. To whom then will ye liken God, or what likeness will ye compare unto him? And now down to verse 28. Has thou not known, has thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that hath no might he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You may be seated. This morning we want to continue a second part of a message on what we commonly refer to as the Lord's Prayer, which could perhaps more properly be referred to as the Disciples' Prayer or the Believer's Prayer. Uh, whatever we call it, this prayer has been called by some as the most majestic piece of literature ever written. It's been called the common denominator of all Christianity. It seems it doesn't matter what Christian circles you go into, in what part of the world, this is something that is quoted and used um, throughout the world. We are looking at this as a model after which to pattern our prayers. So I suggest that you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And uh, we'll be referring to that as we continue on through uh, this message on the Lord's Prayer. A little bit of review uh, before we go, since this is a second part of a continued message. As we looked at this message the last time, we recognized that this prayer, as we looked at this prayer, this prayer teaches us who God is and who we are. And there's a striking difference between the two, who God is and who we are. The prayer begins by focusing on God, and then it transitions to our needs, and then again it closes by focusing on God. It has been described as a mountain on either side with a valley on the middle. So we start out, as I said, focusing on God. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And then it continues by coming down to man, to our poverty, to our need. Give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. You see this focus on man. But then as it continues on, it concludes by focusing again on God. Thy kingdom, thy power, and thy glory. 
So this prayer is really about God. It's about his kingdom, his power, and his glory. God has everything. In the passage that Joseph read from Isaiah 40, it talks about the greatness of God. And who hath known our God? Who hath given him counsel? He is the creator of all things. He has everything. And we have nothing. And I find it amazing that the one who created everything and the one who has everything not only allows but yearns and longs for those of us who have nothing to come into his presence, to come into him in prayer. Uh, this is a rather short prayer, but it's a loaded prayer, and it contains a lot. And there are 12 components in this prayer as we break it down phrase by phrase that we started looking at the last sermon. The last time we looked at five of them, and today we want to continue with, uh, conclude with uh, Father uh, with the, the following seven components. So again, just a little bit of review, phrase by phrase. We looked at the fact that God is our Father. We recognized Him as our Father. We are praying to a personal God when we pray this when we pray this prayer. And this concept is a concept that is new in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the people did not see God as such a personal God. So we recognize God as our Father. Secondly, we recognize our Father's preeminence. He is in heaven. He is a God of unspeakable majesty. His throne is in heaven, and yet he is our Father. We also recognize our Father's holiness. Hallowed be thy name. Holy, holy, holy. As we sang this morning, we need to acknowledge and worship the holiness of God. Furthermore, we saw the need to commit to building our Father's kingdom or to promoting our Father's kingdom. Thy kingdom come. We asked some questions. What kingdom are you promoting here on this earth? Are we promoting God's kingdom or are we promoting our own kingdom? Do our actions cry out, thy kingdom, or do they cry out, my kingdom? Many times we find ourselves preoccupied with building our own kingdom. So we saw the need to commit to our Father's kingdom. And we also saw the need of surrendering to our Father's will. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And we uh, were reminded that prayer is aligning our priorities with God's priorities, not aligning his with ours. Oswald Chambers made the comment, it is not so true that prayer changes things as that prayer changes us, as we align our priorities with God. So that's review. Now as we move forward in this prayer, the focus now moves from heaven to earth. It moves from God's majesty and holiness and kingdom to man's neediness and sinfulness and oppression. And these differences stand out in sharp contrast. And yet, they're complementary. Because if it weren't for the valleys, we would not recognize how high the mountains really are. Now, some of you who know me well know that I enjoy mountains. I enjoy seeing mountains. I enjoy climbing mountains. And some years ago, I was traveling out to western Pennsylvania, and I decided to make a little detour to Mount Davis, which is the highest point in Pennsylvania. I thought it would be interesting to see the highest mountain in Pennsylvania. When I got there, I was somewhat disappointed because it's really not a mountain at all. It's just a little hill because it is in an area of very high altitude. The surrounding, surrounding area there of the Allegheny Plateau is high altitude, so Mount Davis is really not all that 
high. You need a valley next to a mountain to really appreciate the height of a mountain. We think of Mount Everest as the highest point on earth at just over 29,000 feet. But the height from the base of the mountain to the peak of the mountain is really only 12,000 feet because the surrounding altitude is so high. If you actually want to see the highest mountain above sea level, you do not need to travel to the Himalayas, you only need to travel to Alaska and look at Denali, also known as Mount McKinley, because the surrounding area is so much greater that uh, the, the difference from the base to the mountain there is closer to 18 or just over 18,000 feet. So the, the valleys or the low altitude actually serve to accentuate the high altitude of the mountain itself. And that's what we see in this prayer. As we compare the majesty and glory of God's kingdom, and then we see the neediness of man before again returning to the mountain. So when we look at God's greatness and now look at man's needs, the difference is immeasurable. It's not a difference of 12,000 feet. It's not a difference of 18,000 feet. It's an immeasurable difference. But this is a fascinating journey, and the scenery is tremendous as we traverse this landscape from mountain to valley back to mountain in this prayer. So I want to attempt to be your guide as we continue through this most outstanding of journeys. Follow along now as we explore the valley of man's needs. After we have scaled the peak of exploring God's majesty and holiness and loving fatherhood, it's time to admit that we are needy beings and to express our needs to God. As we continue on and look at the sixth aspect of this prayer, which is petition. Give us this day our daily bread. We come to God in petition. That's what this phrase represents. And when we come to God in petition, we need to recognize that we have nothing. We need to recognize that the distance between God's altitude and our, our altitude is immeasurable. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 15 refers to coming forth naked of our mother's womb. Naked shall we return to go. And we shall take nothing of our labor which we must carry away in our hand. We came with nothing. We will leave with nothing. But while we are here, we have needs. There are things that we need. There are also things that we wish for. And sometimes we know the difference and sometimes we don't. There are things that are good for us and some things that are not good for us. This prayer tells us in our petition, we should pray for those things which we need for today. God, we are told to ask God for our needs not necessarily our dreamy wish lists. Now, it does not hurt. God wants to hear what's on our hearts. But this petition here focuses particularly on our needs. Remember, our prayers should focus on God's will more than on our will. It's making his priority our priority. This petition not only focuses on what we need, it furthermore focuses on what we need for today for this moment, for now. You see, God wants us to acknowledge our need of him on a daily basis. He created us that way. We are designed to need continual refilling. 
It does not work for us to sleep for 24 hours straight so that we can go for three or four days without sleep. Some of us may try it sometimes, but it, we just proved to ourselves that it really doesn't work that well. Neither does it work to fill our lungs with a huge supply of oxygen so that we can go without breathing for an hour. If we could do that, I guess we could forget about wearing face masks a lot of places. Just take a deep breath and then charge in. But it doesn't work that way. We need to breathe continually. And in the same way, God is reminding us that we need to depend on him continually. We can't assume that if we have a good job and a steady income that we can take care of ourselves. Our health can change in a moment. Our mobility can disappear in a moment. Our family was reminded of that this week. It doesn't take long. World situations can change almost overnight, as, again, we know very well. And God designed us in a way that we need a steady supply of resources, whether it's oxygen, whether it's food, whether it's sleep. And this is a reminder that we need him as well on a daily basis. An experience is not enough. It takes a relationship. Sunday morning is not enough. It takes a daily relationship. You need to be filled God, with God's presence daily. So when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, it's another way of saying, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. It's acknowledging our need for God. So we have nothing, but on the other hand, God has everything. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. God has everything. Every day, countless atheists and agnostics all over the world owe their lives to God. They owe their life to him for every breath they breathe, every morsel of food they eat. Without God, they would not live for one second. They'd be frozen as solid as a rock. So this prayer is not only a request to God, it's also a recognition of his provision. So we have nothing, God has everything, and God expects us to share what he gives to us. Notice that Jesus did not tell us to pray in this prayer, give me this day my daily bread. The prayer is give us our daily bread. We are in this together. And when we pray, God might be answering our prayer by giving me the means to share with someone else so that we have our daily bread. He may be giving me a good salary so that I can share with you, or he may be giving you extra blessings so you can share with someone else. Our priorities need to be God's priorities. Just a couple comments, a couple more comments here in this aspect of, of petition. I find it interesting as we look at this model prayer, what a small portion of this prayer is actually dedicated to petition or to requests. And when I consider my prayers and, and compare the portion of my prayers that are given to requests, I find the portion generally 
to be much greater, significantly larger. And furthermore, as I examine my prayers, I find that the majority or that many of my requests pertain to me rather than to the larger body of Christ. So maybe my prayers are too narrow sometimes. Uh, as we look at this, I'm not suggesting that we request too much. But what I am suggesting is that perhaps we overlook the other parts of the prayer too much. And we should broaden our prayers to include these other aspects as well and practice the entirety of this prayer. As we do that, I think our prayer lives will become much greater. Let's move on to the next component. The next component is confession, where Jesus says, and forgive us our debts. So this prayer moves from the greatest physical need to the greatest spiritual need. From our daily need for physical provisions to our daily need for cleansing, for spiritual cleansing, to be forgiven and to forgive. Forgiveness is as necessary for our spirit as what food is for our body. Now this aspect of confession, God forgive my sins, forgive my debts, I think is an aspect that we do not hear very often in our prayers today. And I think I hear less of it today than I did even in my younger years. Is it because we have nothing to confess that we're becoming so mature in our Christian lives that we are beyond this point? I hardly think so. Why don't we hear more confession? More confession? Well, I'm not sure. Perhaps it's an issue of pride. Perhaps it's an issue of complacency, of just being satisfied where we are. But I think we need to focus on this a little bit more, this aspect of confession. Notice that confession is not only for the sinner. This prayer Jesus gave to his disciples, to believers. And he said, he taught, after this manner, pray ye, God, forgive us our sins, forgive us our debts. We do not become sinless and perfect the moment we are saved. We need to continue to confess our failures to God and confess them regularly. So confession is not only for the sinner. Furthermore, confession is an unspeakable privilege. Now, we don't look as, at confession as a privilege. Perhaps we, look, perhaps we look at it more as an obligation, something we have to do, something we don't like to do, obviously, but yet it's a wonderful privilege. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you find that verse amazing? Do you recognize the outstanding, unspeakable privilege that is spoken in that verse? We confess and God forgives and cleanses us. If that's not a bargain, I don't know what is. The person who confesses to God always receives the good end of the deal. There's no, nothing to lose in confessing. This is a blessed promise and it's an unspeakable privilege. Furthermore, confession is an undeniable necessity. We know that our failures are many. But what do we do about them? Do we confess them to God when we fail? Cry out to God for mercy and forgiveness? Or do we simply kind of pass them off and determine that, well, 
I'll do better the next time. If that is our response when we fail, if our response is to simply determine that we are going to do better the next time, we are in a dangerous position because if that is our response, we are relying on salvation by works. By earning our salvation by doing better, and that is impossible. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God gives grace to the humble, those who are willing to confess, and it's by this grace that we are saved. Confession is an undeniable necessity. Confession is re illustrated repeatedly in scriptures, and we don't have time to give a lot of these examples, but as you read through the scriptures, you see God's people confessing their sins over and over again. You see people confessing their sins that you don't even think of as being sinners. A couple examples, Daniel, in chapter 9, he cries out, we have sinned, we have committed iniquity and done wickedly. He identified with the sins of his people. Ezra and Nehemiah both did the same. They took personal responsibility. They confessed the sins of their people before God. And even Job, a man that the Bible describes as being perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. At the end of the chapter, at the end of the book, at the end of his discourse with God, he says, wherefore I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Now, if a man who is perfect before God, perfect and upright, needs to repent, needs to confess, what about you? What about me? I think this is an aspect of this prayer that we may need to take a little bit more seriously. Confession leads us to the next aspect of the prayer, and that is forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Someone has said you're never more like Jesus than when you forgive. You're never more like Jesus than when you forgive. This may be one of the most distinguishing characteristics of Christianity. Now, this part of the Lord's Prayer is the only part of the prayer which has a footnote. If you look at verses 14 and 15, Jesus actually comes back and comments farther on these verses. And our time does not permit us to include these verses in the message this morning. So I'm actually, this aspect of forgiveness, I was, I was so um, impressed with this again recently that I don't think I can do it justice in the time we have here this morning. So I think I'm going to save that footnote and this aspect of forgiveness and come back to that later. But again, you're never more like Jesus than when you forgive. More on that later. Let's move on to the next component, and that is guidance. Jesus says we should pray, lead us not into temptation. Now, for many people, this is a confusing part of the prayer because they think, well, of course, how would God tempt us to sin? James says that God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt us, neither tempteth he any man. This word here, temptation, has the idea of testing and proving. 
And we all know that testing is going to come. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we pass. But we should not desire this temptation. And our prayer to God would be that he would deliver us from being tempted above that we are able. Pray for God's direction in life so that we can avoid temptation. I think it's appropriate at the beginning of every day that we pray to God, God, guide my steps today so that I do not walk into a temptation where I will be tempted to do evil. You can even guide my physical path that I take so that I might detour an area where I will be inclined to do evil. One of the songs we sang a few minutes ago, Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. And as, I, as we sang that song, I couldn't help but to just notice the uh, kind of the crescendo as we got to those words, as, as you just cried out, Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. This is a cry that God wants us to pray. Deliver me or lead us not into temptation. I think it's a cry that he wants us to, that he uh, listens to and that he wants us to pray more frequently. Well, the next point is closely related to that. Guidance and protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see, God is in the delivering business. God has delivered throughout history, throughout the Bible, many, many stories of God's deliverance. We're studying through the uh, book of Acts in Sunday school, the life of Paul. We see God's deliverance repeatedly. God is in the delivering business. Many of our favorite stories from the Old Testament. It was God who delivered Joseph from the Egyptian prison. It was God who delivered his people, the Hebrew people, from the land of Egypt. It was God who delivered the three Hebrews from the fiery furnace. It was God who delivered Daniel from the lion's den. You see, God is in the business of delivering. He has delivered. But one thing we notice in each of these situations that I gave, he also allowed them to be, into those, to be in those situations, in some cases, for years. And perhaps that's where you find yourself this morning, in the middle of a situation where you feel like you've been in indefinitely. But while these people were in their trials, they never lost their focus on God. They kept their focus on Him. And they were preserved during that time. And they were also eventually delivered. So God has delivered. God is delivering. Now, deliverance is not always instant. It's not always when we want it. It's not always how we want it. Sometimes I would like to set the terms for my deliverance, when and how, and all the other aspects of it. But our deliverance is in the hands of God, and I find it comforting to know that God is going to write the last chapter. So if you feel that you are in the middle of evil this morning, if you feel like you have been beset by evil, and when I say evil, I'm not referring only to sin. It can be sickness. It can be difficulty. It can be grief, turmoil. If you feel that you're in the middle of evil, it's because you are in the middle of evil. We are surrounded by evil. But we need not fear. God wants to deliver us from fear. Psalm 34, 4, the psalmist said, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, 
and delivered me from all my fears. So even though you might find yourself in evil, God is still today in the delivering business and he can deliver you from the fear of that evil. So he is delivering, but furthermore, God will deliver. And this is an aspect that I find exciting. This world is living under a curse. We know that. Satan has brought it, brought evil into the world, but God is going to deliver this world. He is going to take us from the evil in this world. This is his will. And if you want to pray God's will, this is something you can pray with confidence. God, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from this world. 2 Timothy 4.18, Paul's testimony. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom. Was Paul delivered? Well, when you read the book of Acts, it seems like sometimes he was and sometimes he wasn't. He was stoned. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was persecuted. We understand that he was martyred, but in the end, he was delivered. He had that confidence. God will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom. So let's pray for deliverance, for protection, for ourselves, for our families, for our children, for our church, for our nation. Let's pray for our nation that God would deliver the nation. Let's pray for this world. Even so, Lord Jesus, come, deliver us from the evil. So we've taken a rather short and rather quick trip through the valley as we focused on who God is, and now we spend a few minutes looking at the needs of this world and who man is. But even the valley of this prayer is a reminder of who God is. You know, even as we look at man, it helps us to recognize who God is. And we see in these verses perhaps a veiled reference to the triune God, to the Trinity. Notice how they both come through here. We pray that God would give us this day our daily bread. It's God the Father. It's through the Father's creation and providence and care that we receive our daily bread. And then we pray for forgiveness. And it's through the Son's atonement and his death on the cross that we can obtain forgiveness. And then we pray for victory over the evil one and for deliverance from evil. And it's through the Spirit's indwelling power that we are able to have victory over the evil one. So even as we see man's needs here, we're continually reminded of God. So as I said, we made a quick, quick trip across the valley of man's need, and now we're ready to return to the mountain of God's kingdom and God's power and God's glory. We can't dwell too long in the valley or we lose our perspective. We need to keep our focus on God and return our focus to God as we conclude this prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Coming back to praise God. Now, why does Jesus in this prayer begin with focusing on God and then focus on man's needs and now return to focus on God? I think it's for two reasons. First of all, we need to remember 
we already recognized at the beginning of this prayer who God is. But we need reminders. You see, after we think about our own needs and our need for forgiveness and our need for deliverance from temptation, we still need to be reminded of who God is. So we close again with focusing on God, not only in recognition, but also as a reminder to us. And then we need this reminder so that we can refocus. Focus on God. God is really the focus of this prayer. Our focus needs to be on the solution rather than on the need. You see, our tendency is that we want the glory. We like to think that we have the power. I've got this. I've got it under control. I can handle this. But no, thine is the power. And we try so hard to build our own kingdoms, our own goals, our own desires. But it all belongs to God. It is his. It is his kingdom. When we pray, we're entering the throne room of God. It is his power. It is his glory. George Mueller said, There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. We know that George Mueller was a man who prayed for things that did not look possible from the human perspective. He says, If you just pray for the, for the possible things, what, what glory does God get out of that? There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Pray for the impossible, for his glory, not for ours. It is his forever. Now you might think we're at the end of this prayer. We've had 11 components, and I told you there are 12. There is one more, and that is the component of affirmation. The last word of this prayer. Perhaps this is the most overlooked part of the prayer. I don't know. We seldom, if ever, stop to consider its significance, or perhaps worse, we may even think it doesn't have any significance. I would like to propose this morning that even in this word, there is a significance. Let's look, first of all, what it means. Amen. What does that word mean? Amen, I find it interesting, is not a translation. Rather, it is a transliteration. Now, those two words might not mean too much to you, but a translation is when you take a word in one language and you find a word in another language that means the same thing. In one language, you might talk about a masa. In another language, you might talk about a table, which means the same thing. That's a translation. But this is a transliteration where the actual word itself is taken from one language to the other. Amen is a Hebrew word, a word that was used in Hebrew. And that very word has been transliterated into almost every language on the earth in a, a very similar way. That word is used. Hallelujah is another word like that. It's used in many languages. When I was uh, learning Romanian, I was told that there's several words that are about the same in every language. Amen, hallelujah, and Coca-Cola. <laughs> Those are transliterations. So when I went to a restaurant and wanted something to drink, I could always ask for Coca-Cola. They always knew what I was talking about. So what does this mean? Amen is an expression of affirmation or agreement. And what it actually means is it is true or surely. The same word is often translated in the Bible as truly or verily. 
Many times when we read the Bible, Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, or verily, verily I say unto you. It's the exact same word. He could have said, or it could have been translated, Amen, amen, I say unto you. In other words, it is true. It is true what I am saying unto you. Or we can, can conclude our prayer by saying, These things that I prayed for, I agree with. It is true. Now, I also find it interesting that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So when he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, truly, I say unto you, he could just as well have been saying, I, the truth, say unto you. And when we conclude our prayers with the word, amen, we are just simply affirming what we have prayed. What does it not mean? The word amen does not mean it's the end. It's all over. It's finished. Since we use it at the end of our prayers, we come to think of it as meaning it's the end. We tend to think that the word amen means you may open your eyes now or you may run and play now. When there's a group of people praying, somehow we get into the habit of if several people take their turns praying, nobody says amen until the last person. Well, there may not be anything wrong with that. I'm not finding fault with that. It's actually convenient because we know when, when the time of prayer is, is finished. It's over. But that's not the actual meaning of the word. So how should we use this word, amen, today? How should it be used I would just suggest we use it for what it means, as an expression of agreement. If we use it only to signify the end of something, and someone says amen halfway through a sermon, I guess that means a preacher should abruptly end the sermon and close the service. Maybe someone wants to say amen to that comment. But if we hardly agree with a statement and believe that it's true in our hearts, an amen is appropriate. This can apply when someone else is when praying. Someone else is praying. You know, express an amen at the end of the prayer or in the middle. Often we see this word at the end of a song, and I think it's just simply an affirmation of what we believe, an expression of agreement. Now, this is just a little bit of a personal uh, perspective that I'll throw in here. But sometimes I'm left wondering why we never finish certain songs when there's an amen at the end of the song. And if we skip that, I wonder, hmm, just what part of that song is it that we don't agree with? And if we don't agree with it, why did we sing it in the first place? That's just a personal perspective. Uh, you may differ on that. Another way in which this has been used is as a corporate response. And this is how it was used most frequently in the Old Testament. A prophet or a priest or a leader would express something and the whole crowd would respond in unison. Amen. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, 12 times it says, the people shall answer and say, Amen. It's a corporate agreement. Other phrases from the Old Testament. All the people said, Amen. All the congregation said, Amen. In conclusion, there's a, a story that Merle Burkholder tells in the book Led by His Hand. 
When Merle lived in Dryden, Ontario, he was a board member for the local food bank. And this food bank would supply food for needy families in the area. They'd spend time with them, pray with them, visit with them. And this was a rather small operation. The food bank op uh, operated out of two small rooms, which they rented. And uh, they were probably somewhat limited in what they were doing. And the board of this organization really wanted to expand their organization. They wanted to, uh, they wanted to purchase their own building so they'd have room to grow. They wanted to offer Bible studies. They wanted to offer some classes on marriage and family. They wanted to teach people how to cook and eat in a healthy way. But they were operating on a very small budget and no one would contribute to their building fund because no one had the confidence that they would ever get enough money to buy a building. So the board was praying that someone would give them a donation of $25,000, kind of as seed money, so that other people would see this and say, oh, yeah, I see you're doing something. We will continue to contribute. So they were praying that someone would give them $25,000. One day, Merle was manning a booth at a local expo there in Dryden where local businessmen were coming through. And he was manning a booth showing about the, the food bank. A few people would stop to chat. After a while, one man stopped. And he said, can you tell me about the food bank? So Merle explained how they donated food items to local families in need and so forth. And this man said, well, what does the food bank need? Merle said, well, we can always use spaghetti. This man said, well, you tell me how much you need and how often you need it, and I'll supply it. Well, Merle expressed his thanks. This man said, well, what else do you need? Merle said, well, we can always use macaroni and cheese. This man said, well, we will supply all the macaroni and cheese you need. Well, thank you very much. Merle was very appreciative. This was a pretty profitable contact, he thought. So the man turned and started walking away, and then he stopped. And he turned and he came back and he looked at Merle and he said, do you know who I am? Merle said, uh, no, I don't. He said, I've seen you around a few places, but no, I really don't know who you are. This man said, well, my name is Scott Parker. He said, I own a local restaurant here in town and my wife is a doctor. He said, God has blessed us here and we've had a desire to give back to the community. And I think the food bank would be a good way to do that because you're in the food business, I'm in the food business. You're a Christian organization, I'm a Christian. It just seems to be a good fit. That's why I've been asking you what you need. And finally the light started coming on in Merle's mind and he said, oh, well, would you like to know what we really need? And this man said, yes, I've been trying to find out for the last 20 minutes, and all you tell me is spaghetti and macaroni. <laughs> and Merle said, well, what we really need is $25,000. And he explained the need to him and what they were looking at and what they would like to do. Well, Mr. Parker donated $25,000 plus all the spaghetti and macaroni they needed. And that fund continued to grow, and eventually they were able to purchase their building and expand their ministry. How often do we spend time with God in prayer and at the end of our prayers, God wants to look at us and say, 
Do you know who I am? Do you really know who I am? He is our Father. He is the Lord of glory, the God of heaven, a God of incomparable majesty. He is the Holy One, the hallowed one. His kingdom is eternal and will never be defeated. He is the God of glory, the God of power, the God of the everlasting kingdom. And we come to him with our everyday request for the things that seem important to us. And he may want to ask, do you know who I am? Do you really know who I am? That is why we need to seek his will and to pray that his will be done. That's why we need to align our priorities with his priorities. That's why we need to build his kingdom rather than our own feeble kingdom. Now, I'm not suggesting when I say God wants to ask us, do you know who I am? I'm not suggesting that the prayers we are praying are against his will. What I am suggesting is that so often the prayers that we are praying are below his will. We are not asking for all the things that God wants us to ask for and the things that are important to him, the things that are important to his will. He may have something so much greater in mind than the small things we are asking for. He may be waiting for us to consider what he would like to do while we keep asking for macaroni and cheese. So we need to evaluate our priorities. Is what I'm praying for really important to God? Or is there something greater that he wants me to focus on? Hopefully this journey, this short journey, I feel like it's been a whirlwind journey through the Lord's Prayer, has helped us to better understand who God is and who we are and the tremendous difference between and hopefully we are more eager, eager to submit to his will and to build his kingdom as we pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Let's kneel for prayer. Lord, again, we are awed this morning with the tremendous opportunity that we have to come into your presence come into the presence of the eternal, almighty, and omnipotent King. I think of the, the fear and the trembling with which Esther entered the, prison, the presence of King Ahasuerus. And yet, Lord, we can come boldly into your presence. You long for us to come into your presence. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us your will so that we could pray your will as we focus on your kingdom and your coming. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.